faculty are often reluctant to create video content for their classes because of concerns over technical expertise, the demands on their time, and discomfort being on camera. In this episode, we focus on how videos can easily be created, save time, and improve connections with students. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Karen Costa. Karen is an adjunct faculty member teaching college success strategies to online students and a faculty professional development facilitator at Faculty Guild. She's a staff writer for women in higher education. She writes regularly about higher education and her new book, 99 Tips for Creating Simple and Sustainable Educational Videos, will be released from Stylus in the spring. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Our teas today are... I love tea. I feel like I need to take a stance on tea in this podcast. I go through phases with tea. I was in a huge tea phase a couple years ago. I had a holiday tea and had some ladies over for tea. It was really fun. And I'm not in a tea phase right now, so I'm not drinking tea. Well, maybe this episode will get you back into the tea phase. I'm certainly going to re-enter a tea phase at some point. It's just a matter of time. (laughs) I'm drinking English afternoon. I almost feel guilty saying that. You should. Yeah. And I'm drinking Bing Cherry Black Tea, a Harry and David tea. We've invited you here to talk about your forthcoming book, 99 Tips for Creating Simple and Sustainable Educational Videos. Could you tell us a little bit about the origin of this project? (laughs) I can. (laughs) I have to say, I just submitted the second round of edits and created the index for the book. And I've been working on it for about a year now. And I feel like everyone already has it. And it's wild, the entire book creation process. If I can go back a bit, I fell in love with making videos in high school. So I took a media class junior and senior year with one of my favorite teachers, Mrs. Bestwick. She was my English teacher as well. And a couple of my best friends were in the class. So it was just a ton of fun. And when I think about what we got to do in that class, I'm still pretty amazed. Mrs. Bestwick, she was amazing. She gave us just this incredible opportunity to create. So we hosted our own radio show junior year. And then senior year, the high school installed televisions in all the classrooms. This was in the 90s. So that was like a big deal. And the media class, we did a morning quote unquote news show where we read the announcements about the school and sometimes hard hitting news like interviewing the star of the field hockey team and stuff like that. The show was called The Morning Minute. And I got to be a part of that. And I fell in love with being on camera and creating videos. I am an introvert, so I haven't figured that out quite yet, but I really loved the energy of doing that work. I know y'all are in Oswego. I went to Syracuse for undergrad, so I was right down the road, and I know how winters are up there. I went to Syracuse for broadcast journalism. That was my plan. I wanted to be a news anchor, and freshman year of college, I went to my advisor, and I said, (laughs) I want to change from broadcast journalism to undecided. And he said, no, you can't do that. No one does that. He said, everyone wants to change from undecided into broadcast journalism. So I said, well, I'll be the first. And so I did. I don't know if that was a smart decision or not, but I didn't really do much with video for a while after that. And then sort of flash forward to 
around 2006, 2007, when I started teaching online, I was working in higher ed and I was teaching a college success course online. And I immediately was trying to figure out how to make that online course more engaging and to create a sense of classroom community and to connect with my students. And I thought, why not make more videos for my online classes? And I just went down the rabbit hole and I've been there ever since and trying to figure out ways to make videos and make them engaging and efficient and effective. And I hadn't really thought about it much. And then a couple years into it, I was talking to somebody about it and I said, oh my gosh, I circled back to something that I really loved a long time ago, and it just found a different expression. I thought I was going to be on the news, which would have been a terrible fit for me because it's a really intense environment and I kind of like peace and quiet. And teaching in higher ed is a much better fit for me. And I figured out a way to bring videos into that. So through that experience, I just fell in love with videos and I've been figuring out ways to bring them into my teaching. And then I started talking about it to everybody who would listen and started sharing that with faculty. So The book was born of that experience. What a great journey. Yes, a full circle journey. (laughs) One of the nice things about your book is that you have some QR codes in the book that give you examples of the things you're talking about. Yes. So this is funny. I can take zero credit for the QR codes. Those were the idea of my editor, John Von Noring at Stylus. We were going back and forth on a couple of things and he said, Karen, what do you think about using QR codes in the book? And I was like, ooh, QR codes, because the last exposure I had to QR codes was probably 10 years ago when they first came out. And remember, you had to get a QR code reader app on your phone. They were cool, but they were also a little clunky. And I am pretty intense about keeping things as simple and sustainable as possible, which is in the title of the book. So I was really a little hesitant about that. Like, are faculty going to have to go download an app and remember their app store password to get to these videos? And John said, no, QR codes are different now. So what I learned is you just open the camera on your phone and hold it over the QR code and you're brought right to the video. So I said, okay, let's give this a try. And I'm so, so glad that he had this idea because obviously a book about videos is enhanced by giving people easy access to some of those videos. So when I was editing the book and I kept coming across those QR codes, I was just so excited about the chance that faculty would have to access those videos easily. And the last thing I wanna say about those, I hope when people see the videos that they say, oh, this is kind of basic, this is nothing special. That would be the greatest compliment if they see a video and say, this is nothing special because My hope is they see them and think this is something I can do. I've been thinking about doing more on YouTube and I found this site this higher educator created and the videos were amazing and I was floored and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so impressed by this. And at the same time, I was like, this is not in my power right now to do this. Like I could, but I just don't have the time and energy. They were sort of hyper-produced, polished, professional videos. And I think it's awesome that he did them and there's a space for that, but I'm here to advocate for a different type of video that any faculty will feel empowered to create. So hopefully when people see the videos, they think this is something I could do. I really like the focus on being authentic and not doing something that's overproduced because I think you're right. That really does intimidate faculty and sets them back like, oh, I can't do that. I don't have the time. Yep. So if we're doing something that is a little less polished, a little more authentic, a little bit more in the moment, what are the benefits of doing it that way? There's a lot of benefits and you mentioned time. So I'm going to start there. I don't want to exaggerate, but I think we're all sort of being bombarded. And I know I feel like I'm constantly working to protect my time and that there's so many 
external elements that are seeking to fill my time up. And I know the faculty that I work with are wearing multiple hats. They are teaching, they are department chairs, they are on committees. They come home and grade and prep under really immense time challenges. So one of the big philosophies in this book is that videos will make your life easier and will save you time. I couldn't rationalize putting something else on faculty's plate right now because they just have so much. My sense is that this is a system that will ultimately help faculty to be more efficient and to save them time. And the other piece of that that's really important is that the types of videos that we're talking about here humanize the online learning experience and the learning experience in general, whether you're teaching online or land-based. So when you look at a really hyper-produced video, it can be visually stimulating and exciting and really cool to look at, but it can sometimes make you feel separated and a bit distant. And there's something special about creating a really basic, simple video on the fly, just talking to your students that helps create that connection. I get to say now, I've been excited to start talking about this. The woman who wrote the foreword to the book is just a force in higher education and online learning and the movement to humanize online learning. Her name is Michelle Pekansky Brock. Some of you might know her as Brokansky. <laughs> That's her Twitter handle and her website. And she was kind enough to write the foreword for the book. And she's done amazing work with this movement to humanize online learning. And that is a big part of these types of videos is to help students realize that you're a real person and not a robot. So those are some of the benefits, saving time, not putting a ton of time into creating these videos and building that human connection with students. And modeling that should make faculty feel more comfortable too, which makes it more likely they'll actually start doing this. Karen, can you elaborate a little bit more on ways that you save time? So saving time yeah. by not making it hyper-produced, but I think you were alluding to other ways you might save time as well. Yeah. So one of the biggest realizations for me, I didn't start making videos to save time. <laughs> I talked about that it was sort of a creative passion for me and I wanted to connect with my students. I actually did a lot of not smart things in my video creation process early on. And I'm now able to share those stories with faculty to save them time. There's a lot of like, don't do this in the book. I would, for example, add lots of telling details to my first videos. So I would be like, look at the snow outside of my house. And can you believe it's already snowing in November? Or I'd say, happy Valentine's Day, everybody. I did things like that. So immediately, as soon as I did that, that video was something I couldn't use again. And I would also mention specific dates, like the discussion post this week is due on March 27th. And so then that video was dead. I couldn't use it again. So one of the things I learned was how to make videos reusable so that I could reuse them from term to term. Really just a simple strategy of saying general. So instead of saying a specific deadline, say, I've posted the deadlines for this assignment in the announcements, so please look there. So now I can use that video in a lot of cases in future terms. And the other thing is that I use videos for frequently asked questions. So that was a huge realization for me when I would get all these repetitive questions from students term after term after term. Rather than always emailing every student and answering those questions, I could create videos that would be more proactive. So that was a big shift I noticed in my online classrooms when I started creating videos was that students were more likely to accurately complete the assignments and to be putting forth great work 
And I didn't get as many of those repetitive type questions because they were getting those answers in the videos. And that saved me a ton of time. Just, <laughs> I think a lot of folks realize that those emails, they seem like, oh, it's just 30 seconds here or there answering them, but they really do add up. So anything we can do to be proactive there and to still support students and student learning and get those questions answered, but to do it in a way that's more reasonable, I think is a really powerful shift and videos can help us do that. So you've talked a little bit about how videos can create more of a sense of instructor presence in online classes, and you've talked about how it can be used to reduce the workload on faculty by not having to treat an online course as perhaps a set of independent studies for each student where you're <laughs> working one-on-one -on -one with them by email. But might videos also be useful in face-to-face -face classes to help flip the classroom? That is another track that the book takes. And... I taught land-based classes before I started teaching online. And then for quite a while, I was teaching both at the same time. And what's funny is that my online teaching started to influence my land-based teaching. So I started to realize that I could use videos in my land-based classes. And that was inspired by my online teaching. That's something I think we're starting to talk more about how online courses were sort of originally seen as like second best. Like, oh, if you can't take classes in person, you could take them online if you have to. And I'm an advocate for there's tons of benefits to online learning. And many of us learn better and more effectively online. And I think we're now starting to talk about how online teaching can influence land-based teaching. So that option to bring videos into the land-based classroom is there. It's something I write about in the book. I think there's two aspects. The flipped learning model for folks who are interested in sort of taking more of the passive learning elements. And I know passive learning, some people say is an oxymoron, but if you're going to bring students into a, a land-based classroom and do a lecture, why not record a lecture, send that out, and then do some more interactive stuff in the classroom? So that's kind of the flipped learning model in a nutshell. So I talk in the book about how you can do that. And I think people are interested in doing that, but a big obstacle is how do I even make those videos? So I want to make that accessible to people. But even if you're not thinking about the flipped learning model specifically, you can send out a welcome video to your land-based students before class starts to just say, hey, I'm looking forward to seeing you. Here's what you could do to prepare for the first day of classes. That's like such a simple 10-minute strategy that gets students prepared to come in and get ready to learn and get going right from the start on that first day. So that's just a really simple thing that a land-based professor could do. I talk about when canceling classes or you're traveling for a conference or we just had a bunch of snow days last week, there's a lot of opportunities to bring videos into land-based teaching as well. In fact, I had just done that. I was at the OLC conference with Rebecca and quite a few other people. And because I was teaching a large face-to-face -face class, I created a couple of videos, Yay! inserted some questions, uploaded them as SCORM objects. So that way my students could still do some online quizzing like they would have done if they were in class with clickers. So videos can have lots of useful purposes in classes. Absolutely. How would you recommend faculty get started? Well, I guess the kind of cheeky answer is to buy my book. But <laughs> in the meantime, Certainly folks can check out the videos that I created to accompany the book or posted on my YouTube page. Those are open to anybody and you're welcome to see those. The way that I learned was through trial and error. The simplest recommendation I have is to record a welcome video on your phone in the YouTube app. That's just the most basic, simplest type of video I think you can create. And welcome students to your class, introduce yourself, tell them what they're going to learn, why you're excited about teaching and share that either with your land-based class or in your online classroom. 
And what I would also add to that is there's a lot of anxiety for faculty and for people in general about being on camera. And I think this is a challenge. We live in the society where we think, oh my gosh, everybody's putting all of their lives online. What do you mean people are anxious to be on camera? It's very different. FaceTiming your best friend is very different than recording a video for your students. And a lot of folks are very nervous to do that for a lot of reasons. So I would just say that to be human, to be nervous is okay. And I think we're learning there's actually a benefit to that. Your students are also nervous. They're terrified of starting college or a new class. So to see you say, I'm creating my first video and I'm a little nervous about doing this, but I'm going to give it a try. That can have such a huge impact on your students and to help normalize fear and frustration, which is really important, particularly for our first generation college students. So know that that's not a negative if you're nervous to be on camera, that it actually might really be a positive thing for you and your students. This is another thing I get kind of passionate about. There's a lot of energy out there about you have to create these hyper-produced perfect videos using this very complicated technology. Just shut that out. And if that comes to you down the road and there is a place for that, I don't want to knock that. But it's okay to keep it really, really simple. A two-minute welcome video, no bells and whistles, just you speaking from the heart is a wonderful place to start. What are some of the most common mistakes that faculty make when they create videos? What should faculty think about trying to avoid? Okay, this one is, I think controversial is a strong word. But I know that I differ from some folks here. I don't like when people use a script. And here's why. When people are nervous about being on camera, I think it's a very logical response to think, I'm going to create a script because if I get nervous, I'll just read off the script. And (laughs) I say this in the book, there's a very specific population of folks who can read off a script and still be engaging. And they are professional broadcasters. Most folks reading off a script, and I'm sure there's exceptions to this rule, But if you're new to being on camera and recording videos, reading off a script can come off as very robotic and actually sort of disengaging. And what we're looking to do in these types of videos is to be very human and to connect and to reveal ourselves, not an inappropriately personal level, but to just show our humanity. And reading off a script, I think, can be an obstacle to doing that. So that's one of the biggest mistakes I see is that when people are just clearly reading from a screen, it just kind of falls flat. So my recommendation would be have an idea of what you want to say and then just speak from the heart. And if you stumble over a few words, amazing, perfect. You get the chance now to show students, here's how to make a mistake and keep going. What could be a more powerful lesson to share with our students than how to make a mistake and keep going? So that's actually a good thing. I think the other big thing I see that I talk about is this idea that the camera eats your energy. (laughs) So you can take someone who's pretty engaging in a traditional land-based learning experience and put them on camera and the camera takes some of that energy out of you. So you do have to be a little bit peppier on camera than you might be in a traditional setting. So I just remind folks to just add a little bit of pep. I know that can feel weird at first. But to smile and be a little animated, you'll think that you're looking a little bit goofy and you won't because the camera will take some of the energy out of that. To just put a little pep and energy into your videos, to smile, to look like you're having fun and, you know, fake it till you make it. If you pretend that you're just loving being on camera and be a little silly, you'll be surprised how quickly you just do start having fun with it. 
I had students do some podcasts this semester, and that same issue came up about whether they should use a script. Mm. And what I suggested is before they record it, they should try it three ways. One is they should try just doing it free form. Then they could record it when they're reading from a script. And then they could record it where they're using an outline to structure it. And I said, record all of those, listen to it, and see which sounds more natural. And then that's what you should go with when you record it. And maybe that might be a good approach for faculty because some people might be better with a script. Others might be better when they just have an outline and others might be better just improvising things. I like that. And obviously experience is a great teacher, right? So one of my philosophies of teaching is that I want to help my students in any setting, whether they're students or faculty, to become their own best teachers. So absolutely try out different things. I also think be a consumer of videos. A funny thing happens when you start making videos, you start to notice a lot about other people's videos. So notice the videos that you love that are really engaging and notice the ones that aren't as engaging. And that can give you some clues about your own video creation strategies. Absolutely. But try out different things. I think that's great. A really similar conversation that I just had with my students about web design. They were telling me that they don't use browsers on their phones. They use mostly apps and they don't know what websites look like. <laughs> oh, wow. And it's like, you might not know what a welcome video looks like if you've never seen one or you never experienced something like that. So it's better to seek them out and find out what they're like and what the genre is even like before making any judgment. Yeah. And you can learn so much. I learn as much from things that I love as from things that don't seem to work for me. Like, oh my gosh, that's fantastic to know that for me, a script doesn't work because I've seen a lot of videos where folks are obviously reading off a script. So that's great knowledge. Just start to be a savvy video content consumer and notice what speaks to you. For me, what really speaks to me are just personal, no nonsense, no frills, speaking from the heart types of videos. And again, I think there's a place for all kinds of videos, but I notice that there's a strong contingent out there for the more hyper-produced videos. So I want to be a voice for these more simple and sustainable videos for sure. I think the key, like what you're talking about is finding whatever feels really authentic to you. Yeah, absolutely. One of the most common things that faculty do is create screencasts of slideshows or other things. What's your take on whether or not there should be a talking head on those videos? I've seen a lot of arguments in many directions there. Yeah. So again, there's not a one size fits all answer there. So I've tried to give people a bunch of options. If you have created videos where you're on camera and you are just incredibly uncomfortable and that's translating into the quality of the video that you're creating, I really want to encourage people to try and practice. And I do think most people will come around and start to feel more comfortable and create engaging content being on camera. But if eventually you're at a point where you're like, this is just not working for me, it's not authentic for me then maybe it's time to set it aside, at least for a time. And you can still make really engaging, simple, sustainable videos for your students in a lot of other ways. And one of those is to create screencasts where you're not on camera and you're just recording the content on your screen. So that's a really big benefit. That said, I love being on camera, but there are days when I don't want to be on camera or I don't feel that I'm camera ready per se. I work from home and if just all heck has broken loose that day, but I still need to make a video for my students, I will just sometimes opt to not be on camera. So it's just a good option to be able to do screencasts. The other thing I do say is to think about attention and cognitive load and 
I almost always add my headshot to a screencast, but if you have already established that relationship with your students and built that connection and you feel like being that little thumbnail of you being on camera might be a little bit distracting if you're perhaps presenting a complicated concept to them in the screencast, then maybe you want to stay off camera so that they can use all of their attention and mental resources to focus on the screencast itself and not on you. And there's a benefit to that. I talk a lot about thinking about your instructional goals and meeting your students' needs and your needs when you decide what type of video to create. I like that emphasis on there's two audiences here that you need to address yourself and your own humanness and time and whatever, as well as the student. I'm really glad you said that. That ended up becoming a really big theme of the book. I set out to write this book about videos, and one of the big themes became faculty success. And I've written and talked about this before. We often talk about faculty success only in relation to student success. And faculty are sometimes treated as a means to an end. And I don't think that works, and I don't think it's going to work. I think that we need to talk about faculty success as being worthy in its own right. And I really try to look for and advocate for those spaces of mutuality where both faculty and students are benefiting. I think with our limited time and energy and resources that those are the spaces that we really should be investing our attention to support this work we do in higher education. I'll bring staff in there as well, all of the wonderful staff that work in higher education. We can't create cultures of care that are only focused on caring for students <laughs> and that sacrifice faculty and staff. That's not what a culture of care is. So I think it's really important for faculty to think about, yes, this is what I want to teach students and I care about student learning and success. And how is this going to impact me? And it's okay to take that into consideration and to look for perhaps a compromise where you're able to do both. I really like your emphasis on sustainability as well. One of the things that I've done in the past, because I teach such a technical area that changes so frequently, is that I had a lot of technical screencast videos that were really helpful to students. They really loved that it was me talking to them for all those reasons about having established a relationship and it was familiar. When I screwed up, it was like they liked that. But then they would get out of date so quickly. Yeah. So I moved away from that for a while, but I've actually moved back to doing it again, but on a much smaller scale that's more manageable, where it's something that I think is going to last a long time rather than some of the things that are changing or a little more nuanced or that there's a lot more conversation that might have to happen around those topics. I just had a huge smile on my face as you were describing that journey and the evolution of your system, because that really describes my <laughs> video creation evolution as well. I had so many videos, just all in with videos, and I set myself up in a way that wasn't sustainable. And then I got a little bit burned out with making them. I had a room in my house with lighting and a screen. And every time I wanted to create a video, it became this huge thing. And I had so many videos that they weren't always reusable and I didn't want to do it anymore. I was still making them, but my production level just went down pretty drastically. And now for me, the priorities are making sure students are able to navigate my online courses because <laughs> I don't think we realize how scary that is to go into an online course. We're in there all the time. We know it like the back of our hand. And for a student who's new to college or new to online learning to go into an online course is incredibly overwhelming. So I always want to have videos that kind of show them around welcoming them into our classroom, and then building those connections with my students, speaking from the heart, reaching out to say thank you and to connect with them. And since I've gone back to those basics, I'm in a much better place with my system. So I think we need to talk about sustainability in teaching, not only with videos, but with teaching in general. So that's another big theme of the book. 
I think you had in one of your videos a discussion of Powtoons and using similar tools. Am I correct on that? Yes. Powtoons are another alternative I talk about. I like to give people options. So we're not all going to feel comfortable being on camera. Powtoons are something I discovered a few years ago. And it's a great website. It's like a lot of our tech tools. There's a free version and a paid version. And with the free version, you can create really adorable (laughs) little videos for your students. Powtoons are animated videos and they give you a template so you can just pop in a few different elements and you can have a little avatar of yourself or you can bring in a picture of yourself. And they're a great option for faculty who don't want to be on camera but still want to create really fun and cool videos for their students. So a little bit more complicated than creating a screencast in my experience. But if you are artsy, you're creative, and that's something that's a really important part of your teaching practice, Powtoon's a great option. Do you address accessibility at all in your books? Yes. Accessibility is something I'm learning a lot about in the past couple of years making that shift from an accommodations mindset, which was where I think I was, and I think a lot of us were and still are, to a model of accessibility. So I'm not an expert on it. There's a lot of great folks out there who are, but what I know is that I have a lot to learn and that for me, sort of a basic strategy is to add captions to our videos and to make sure that we're not just relying on the auto-generated captions that we get in YouTube, which aren't always accurate, and to make sure that all of our students can access our videos and enjoy our videos. So there's a lot of talk about captions in higher education right now. So they do add some time to your video creation process. What I recommend is that you start where you are, and if you've already created videos, then you need to go back. I'm doing this myself. Start adding captions. And when you create a new video, just take the time. It seems like it's more time once you get the hang of it. It usually takes about, depending on the length of the video, but if you've got a five-minute video, it shouldn't take you more than five or six minutes to add captions. And it's worth its weight in gold for what it will do for our students. So start there. And my hope is that we're going to see some more tools that support faculty in creating accurate captions for their videos. And we're not quite there yet. It still requires some manual labor. But the important thing is to keep that in mind and to have that accessibility mindset and to keep learning. I think we're all learning every day about accessibility. So cognitive load is a great reason for a short video, but so is accessibility (laughs) for the captions. Yeah, absolutely. For people who are getting started, are there any recommendations you have for either hardware or software? I keep it really, really simple. So I think most of us have a built-in webcam on their computers, and I say go with that. Some folks like to purchase an external webcam that is a little bit better quality. You do not need to do that. You can work with the webcam that's built into your computer. You used to be able to record videos on your desktop in YouTube, and you can't do that anymore. So that sort of added an additional layer. I record using a tool called Screencast-O-Matic, which I talk about quite a bit in the book, and I hope it's around for a very long time. It is right now, in my opinion, I've tried a bunch of different options. It's the most intuitive tool that we have. And I record in Screencast-O-Matic. I can record my headshot type videos. I can record Screencast or a combination of both. And then right through Screencast, I can upload my videos onto YouTube. And it takes me for five minute video, the entire process takes me about 10 minutes. So I would absolutely recommend, I use the free version. There is a paid version. I use the free version. I upload into YouTube, also free. I do my captions in YouTube, and then I share with my students. 
The only other thing that I have invested in, which came with my phone, are earbuds. And that's what I use. I used to have a bunch of different microphones and I just stick with my basic earbuds now and they get the job done. So I keep it that simple. And when you keep it that simple, it's a portable studio. Yep, absolutely. And your smartphone can also make it even more portable when you're doing something in the field or on site somewhere. Yeah, a lot of folks are using their smartphones. I think that's fantastic. And I talk a lot about it in the book. I'm kind of embarrassed to say this. I'm always in front of my computer working. So we have kind of a good relationship, my computer and I. But for a lot (laughs) of folks, they're going to feel more comfortable on their smartphone. It's a different energy for me. I don't know what it is. I feel like I have my professional energy on my computer. And when I do record sometimes on my smartphone, that feels like a more personal space for me. So I don't feel like my best video creation self when I'm recording on my smartphone. But I know a lot of folks who do it. And as you said, it can go with you anywhere. So if you're out and about in the world and you see a teachable moment that you can share with your students, you can pull it out and record right on the spot. And I should mention through the YouTube app on your phone, you can record which you can't do on your desktop. So for some folks, if they don't want to use Screencast-O-Matic, that would be a really simple option to record through the YouTube app on their phone. Why might including videos be especially important in online classes? I guess I just want to emphasize that I think we're learning more and more about the importance of faculty, student relationships and connections, particularly in the online learning environment. And I would say that we're talking a lot about online course design, which is fantastic. I am trying to get out there as a voice to talk about online teaching. And I saw on Twitter the other day, someone said, well, course design and teaching are two sides of the same coin. And I think that makes a lot of sense. But I really want to get out there that just designing an excellent course is obviously an important place to start. And we also need to think about how we're teaching and facilitating those online courses. And for me, it always comes back to relationships and building a positive classroom community. And what I've heard from my students over the years is that videos help them to feel connected to me. So I cannot tell you the number of times in my course evaluations that students will say, I thought that I was not going to know my online teacher. I thought that I would never see my online teacher. I didn't know what to expect. And I feel like I really know Karen through the videos that she created for us. And a lot of them, students are real smart. A lot of the comments will say, the videos were really helpful for my understanding of course assignments and learning. And I really love that Karen took the time to make them. So they see that videos are not only a tool for teaching, but they're an expression of caring, of my care for them. And I think that really impacts their learning experience. So I really want to emphasize that relationships, human relationships, are important to online teaching. And I hope we'll continue to focus more on that in the future. And I think videos are going to be a big part of that. When is your book scheduled for release? Well, I just submitted the second round of edits and the index, and we're going to be seeing it. Deadlines come and go and shift, but we'll be seeing it hopefully in early 2020. I'm sure I'll be updating everyone on the specific date when I have it. (laughs) And you've shared with us a link to a discount code for our listeners. So we'll include that in the show notes. Awesome. Thank you. Folks can pre-order the book now if they're interested as well. We always wrap up by asking, what's next? (laughs) I have to share this. There's a woman I follow online. She's an author. She's an activist. Her name is 
Glennon Doyle Mountain, she wrote a book that was one of Oprah's selections. So she gained a huge audience through that. And she shared a story online recently. She was interviewed for a podcast and they asked her that. And she said something like, well, I'm going to go pick up my kids from school. And the interviewer said, no, I mean, like in your career and your future. And she said, oh, I don't really think about that. I just think about doing the next best thing. So I really loved that because <laughs> I do try to focus on just doing the next best thing, which for me is wrapping up this term, this semester in a really positive way. I think my senses were all really sort of feeling it right now. And this is a tough time of year in higher education. And at the same time, I really want to end on a positive note with my students and my faculty, even though I'm tired and I'm ready to wrap things up. I don't want that to negatively impact my students or faculty in any way. I just really want to finish strong and honor all the work they've done this term. So I'm focused on taking care of myself and having a positive end to the semester for all parties. This book journey has been pretty wild and it's been going for a while now. So I'm really excited to actually see it come out into the world and to share it with faculty. And I love working with higher ed faculty so much and they're doing such good work in the world. So I hope that this can be a tool to help them be happier, healthier, and to feel empowered in their work. I think it will. I'm looking forward to receiving a copy of the book. I think at the end of the book, when it finally is released, then it's time to have the tea party. I will need to do something to celebrate that. <laughs> I describe the process as like, I've never run a marathon, but I imagine writing a book and publishing is like running four marathons. So I don't know where I am in that process, but... <laughs> You just know you'll be really tired when it's done. Yeah. <laughs> tired and grateful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for joining Thank us you. today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on tforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.